Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to Behind the Knife, Medical Student and Intern Survival Guide. The Behind the Knife Medical Student Intern and Survival Guide is a surgical education podcast series that focuses on high-yield topics relevant to medical students and surgical interns. My name is Patrick Georgeoff. And I'm Vahag Nikolian. And we are your hosts. We hope you are finding the podcast useful thus far, and if you have any suggestions or requests, please shoot us an email. Our addresses can be found in the show notes. So we've got a very uh, uh, exciting episode lined up for today. Uh, today we're going to be discussing trauma, which is very exciting for Patrick. It's his favorite topic. Hey, it is, V. And what do you like so much about trauma, Pat? Yeah, uh, I like that you really, uh, literally, uh, can save someone's life right then and there. Uh, I find that pretty exciting. It's also fast-paced and a pretty unpredictable specialty, as we're going to highlight with our cases. You mix in a little bit of physiology, a little bit of critical care, some ethics, and I think it makes for a pretty cool uh, career. Absolutely. So this is a topic that all medical students and interns should know well. So Patrick, let's start it off. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, for interns, this is absolutely critical. This is a must. Uh, so today we're going to cover the primary and secondary surveys. On our next episode, we will go through a handful of cases to bring it all together. All right. Sounds good. So what is the primary survey? Yeah, the primary survey is a standardized sequential evaluation of a trauma patient that is designed to rapidly identify uh, any life-threatening injuries. And the primary survey, uh, in order, includes A for airway, B for breathing, C for circulation, D for disability, and E for exposure. And you must, without a doubt, complete the ABCs for every trauma patient every single time. That's 100% correct. So during the primary survey, what we're trying to do is identify life-threatening conditions that are uh, going to be identified and prioritized in sequence based on the effects that they have on the patient. When you go through your ABCs, you're trying to treat what's at greatest risk of compromising the patient's life. And in doing so, you avoid preventable deaths. Yeah, we're going to talk about preventable deaths like, uh, um, or preventable causes of death like tension pneumothorax and pericardiac or pericardial tamponade in our cases. But uh, first, let's get back to A. We're going to talk about airway. And the easiest way to assess the airway is to ask the patient their name. Uh, if they can talk to you, their airway is probably intact. Well, what are the, the two biggest kind of categories of injuries that you might compromise the airway? Right, so maxillofacial trauma and altered mental status from the head injuries are going to be the biggest causes. So less common would be blunt or penetrating injuries to the neck. In regards to altered mental status, we oftentimes think about a Glasgow Coma Scale or GCS of less than 8 uh, as a indication to intubate. So uh, we use that oftentimes. Yeah, so if the airway is intact, remember, uh, it may not stay that way. Uh, so you've got to re-examine on a regular basis. Always be concerned for impending airway obstruction. Yeah. So what do you do if the patient comes in and, in fact, you've identified that maybe they don't have a patent airway? Well, uh, if there's no obstruction present, uh, you can perform some simple maneuvers uh, to maintain the airway. These include a chin lift or a uh, jaw thrust. But really, if there's any doubt at all about the airway, you should go ahead and obtain a definitive airway, meaning you need to intubate the patient, or if you're unable to do that, you perform a cricothyroidotomy. 
and in the trauma bay, who's usually performing intubation and managing the airway? Yeah, at most institutions, the emergency department staff man the airway. Uh, but it, it is the surgeon's responsibility to place a surgical airway if needed. In the trauma setting, this means uh, a cricothyroidotomy, not uh, a tracheostomy. Uh, so a crike is placed through the cricothyroid membrane while a trach goes through the trachea itself, and that's usually between the second and third uh, tracheal rings. Now, it's recommended to do a crike in the emergent setting because the exposure uh, is much better and it makes the procedure faster and, and easier to do. All right, so moving along in the alphabet, next is B for breathing. Uh, you're going to be assessing breathing by looking, listening, and feeling. Uh, you look to identify chest rise, asymmetry, or increased work of breathing. You're going to listen uh, to breath sounds bilaterally using a stethoscope, and you're going to feel for any obvious injuries. Injuries that uh, can rapidly compromise breathing include a tension pneumothorax, a tension hemothorax, or a flail chest, which occurs when multiple fractures across multiple ribs impede lung expansion. So, Patrick, how would you address a tension pneumo or hemothorax? Yeah, that's uh, by decompressing it. A, a tension pneumothorax is usually due to a lung injury that allows air to get out of the lung and into the pleural space, but not back out of the pleural space. It's essentially creating a one-way valve. It's an, uh, extremely important to note that you do not need imaging to diagnose a tension pneumo or hemothorax. This is a clinical diagnosis and can and should be made in a matter of seconds. To decompress a chest, we put in a chest tube. Um, and uh, Vahak, how do, you, how do you go about putting in your chest tubes? All right, so to place a chest tube, I would, we identify the fifth intercostal space and the anterior axillary line. Uh, we then make a horizontal incision parallel to the intercostal space. Next, we use hemostats to make a track through the subcutaneous tissues and the muscle before popping into the chest. And whenever doing this, it's important to recognize that this can require a fair amount of force. Uh, once we do that, we then slide in our tube, typically a 28 French chest tube, and direct it posteriorly and apically. When placing chest tubes, it's also very important to make sure that the last hole or the perforation in the chest tube is actually within the chest and not outside of it. Once you've confirmed all of these things, go ahead and secure it with suture and uh, place it to suction. Yeah, I got a pro tip for you here too. Uh, clamp the end of your tube as well. Uh, otherwise, you may run the risk of getting blood all over your shoes when you put it in. Uh, your shoes and then some. So yeah. been there, done that. I've definitely learned my lesson. So our listeners have also probably heard about needle decompression, which can be done in life-threatening situations when chest tubes aren't available. Patrick, can you tell us a little more about yeah, that? Yeah, that's a good point. To do this, you use a 14-gauge uh, angiocatheter or, or really anything similar. Uh, and the classic description is that you insert the catheter uh, in the second rib space at the midclavicular line. Uh, but I think it's important to know that the needle decompression has a really high failure rate, and that's for a number of reasons, including the fact that most patients' chest walls are too thick uh, to get a standard angiocatheter all the way through. Um, the catheters themselves are pretty wimpy and can uh, kink and uh, easily dislodge. And uh, if you do have a long enough catheter, you also run the risk of sometimes poking the lung itself with the needle. All right, so... Big picture, it's important to know that we have a very low threshold for putting chest tubes in in the trauma setting. Attention pneumothorax is not uncommon and can kill a patient in minutes. Yes, right. When in doubt, put in a chest tube. Great. So, all right. So, let's move on to the next letter, C, circulation. Patrick, how do you check for circulation? Yeah, first you check a central pulse. Uh, I always start at the femoral artery because the patient is usually in a C collar, making the carotid less accessible. 
You should also take note of how the patient looks. Are they ashen and gray, for instance? Uh, this could mean that they have suffered a significant amount of blood loss. Right. So uh, this may seem like an obvious question, but what do you think if a patient doesn't have a pulse? Yeah, what do I think? Yeah, what do you trauma? do? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, what do you do? That's really... <laughs> That's actually a great question. Uh, if there are no pulses, uh, you want to transition to the advanced cardiac life support or ACLS cardiac arrest algorithm. Uh, that includes CPR, epinephrine, and if indicated, defibrillation. At the same time, you need to review all of your H's and T's. Again, your H's and T's includes hypovolemia, hypoxia, hydrogen ions or acidosis, hypo or hyperkalemia, hypothermia, tension pneumothorax, cardiac tamponade, toxins, and pulmonary or cardiac thrombosis. So obviously in the trauma setting, some of these are going to be a bit more common than others. Uh, and remember, the H's and T's, the, the good thing about them is that they're reversible causes of arrest. So if you can identify these, you have the opportunity to treat the patient as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, uh, in the trauma setting, hypovolemia for massive blood loss is not uncommon. Uh, you would want to get IV access and get blood as quickly as, as possible in these patients to try to treat this reversible cause of injury. A lot of times what we get asked is what constitutes good IV access? And Patrick, yeah. can you sort of tell us a little more? Yeah, about there's that? no definition uh, for good IV access, but I would say at least two 16-gauge peripheral IVs work. Um, or a short, large-bore central venous catheter, like a cordis catheter. Uh, and finally, also uh, an interosseous catheter uh, also constitutes good access. So interosseous catheter uh, are drilled into the proximal tibia or humerus. Um, mm -hmm. Great. So what kind of blood products are, uh, do you want to give in? Uh, specifically, uh, sort of what ratio would you want to give them in? Yeah. If I know the patient is bleeding or I have a high suspicion that they are, then it is acceptable to go straight to giving blood products. And when resuscitating with blood, you want to do so in a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one fashion. This means that you give uh, equal amounts of packed red blood cells, FFP, and platelets, with the idea being that you are recreating whole blood, which is what the patient is actually losing. It is important to note that at most institutions, platelets, though, are given as a five- or six-pack, meaning there are pooled platelets from five or six uh, donors in a single unit. Therefore, when we're really talking about, when we're talking about the actual bags of product that are given, the ratio is actually more like five units of pack cells to five units of FFP to one unit or one bag of platelets, those again being the pooled platelets. So uh, don't be confused about that. Uh, and data to support this uh, transfusion strategy uh, comes from uh, uh, two large and often cited trials known as the prompt and proper trials. All right, great. So some other H's and T's to think about in the trauma setting include tension pneumothorax, uh, which we hopefully already addressed as part of the breathing, and uh, cardiac tamponade. Yeah, that's right. Both tension pneumothorax and cardiac tamponade can kill someone in minutes. Uh, in regards to cardiac tamponade, this can be diagnosed using an ultrasound, which we're going to talk about in more detail uh, shortly. To decompress cardiac tamponade, you need to open the pericardial sac, which is done through a thoracotomy uh, or an upper midline laparotomy incision. All right, so Patrick, a patient comes to the ED uh, following a major trauma. What's the most extreme treatment that you can provide to a trauma patient who has lost pulses? That would be a resuscitative thoracotomy, also known as an ED thoracotomy. And now, if certain indications are met, and that's important, if certain indications are met, an ED thoracotomy may be performed in order to obtain rapid access to the heart, to the lungs, and to the great vessels of the chest. 
with this exposure, uh, uh, we can manage bleeding, we can decompress the pericardial sac, you can perform open cardiac massage, you can defibrillate the heart, and you can cross-clamp the aorta. Now, by putting a clamp on the aorta, you block the flow of blood to the abdomen and lower extremities where there might be uh, significant bleeding uh, uh, from trauma. And uh, you also preserve the uh, blood flow to the heart and the brain, everything above the clamp. All right. So we just talked about an intervention for a pulseless patient. But let's say the patient does have a pulse. Is circulation the time to deal with obvious or external bleeding? Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, this should be managed during the primary uh, survey during review of, of C or circulation. And some options include direct pressure, uh, tourniquets, staples or sutures, and if the patient has a pelvic fracture, wrapping or binding uh, their pelvis. So some of these are addressing what I'm about to ask you. But what are the regions, and there's specifically six of them, uh, where a patient can have a large volume of hemorrhage? Yeah, uh, often uh, asked a pimpable question as well. Uh, this would be the chest, the abdomen, the retroperitoneum, the pelvis, the thigh, or the scalp. Right. So let's move on to D for disability. In, in this step of the primary survey, we perform a rapid neurologic evaluation. This includes calculation of your Glasgow Coma Scale. Uh, or score, I should say, uh, the three components of which are motor, verbal, and eye scores. We also check at that time the patient's pupils and the size and responsiveness of those uh, pupils. Yeah. And finally, E for exposure. Uh, the patient should be rapidly stripped of all their clothes to allow for a full examination. And this includes rolling the patient to assess their backside as well. When rolling the patient, though, uh, remember that someone needs to be uh, responsible for maintaining control of the cervical spine. Um, in addition to looking for injuries, we also palpate the patient's entire spine to assess for pain uh, or uh, a misalignment of the spine. Uh, once this is complete, be sure to cover the patient back up, uh, preferably with warm blankets. Uh, in addition to metabolic acidosis and coagulopathy, hypothermia is one of the players in the triad of death. So great. I think that wraps up the primary survey. So oftentimes students or residents may notice that there's far more going on during the primary survey than what we just described. Uh, these are recognized as the adjuncts to the primary survey. So, Patrick, if you could please just uh, talk about what we mean when we say adjuncts to the primary. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, adjuncts include vital signs, labs, EKG, FAST exam, and chest and pelvic x-rays, among other diagnostics. Uh, adjuncts confuse a lot of students because it is not always clear where they actually fit into the trauma workup. And in reality, some adjuncts occur at the same time as the primary survey. However, uh, while they are extremely useful and important, adjuncts are not technically part of the primary survey. Right. So the most injured trauma patients get most of these things done in the trauma bay. Let's, let's talk a little about one of the adjuncts we mentioned, the FAST exam. The FAST, or a focused assessment with sonography and trauma, aims to determine the presence of free fluid in the pericardial space or the abdomen. This is accomplished by studying four specific areas, including the subxiphoid area, the right flank, the left flank, and the suprapubic area. On ultrasound, free fluid will be hypoechoic, and the presence of any free fluid means that the exam is deemed positive. Yeah, and hypoechoic means that it looks darker gray or black. Uh, on, on the image. And so, uh, V, what's the sensitivity of the FAST exam? Unfortunately, the FAST is very much dependent on the user, and it can range between 60 and 100%. Sure. And uh, how long should it take an experienced individual to perform a FAST exam? In the trauma bay, where every minute really counts, we should anticipate that a FAST takes less than about two to three minutes. 
Okay, uh, let's move on to the secondary survey. Uh, the secondary survey only occurs after the primary survey is complete and the patient is determined to be stable. To complete the secondary survey, many providers use the acronym AMPLE, which stands for allergies, medications, past medical history, last meal, and events leading to the injury. Now what you're really doing here is trying to just put, put it all together, essentially. You're taking the time uh, to learn about the patient and their injuries and to determine what additional studies uh, might be needed. So that, that completes our review of the primary and secondary surveys. And, and I want to touch on a couple just uh, bigger picture items before we finish off. And that's first, it is really, really critically important to assess the patient the same, excuse me, the patient the same way every single time. The algorithm stays the same no matter what the injury is. A, B, C, D, and E. Second, it's important to repeat the primary survey as the patient's status evolves. And this may need to be done uh, multiple times. And finally, uh, you need to decide where the patient's going to go next. Uh, the trauma bay is not a destination uh, for them, and you need to make this decision uh, rapidly. And you, you, patients really only go to three places from the trauma bay. You go straight to the OR, you can go to the CT scanner, or you go to the ICU or the floor. And uh, the most difficult decision of these uh, is whether or not the patient is stable enough uh, to make it to the CT scanner. Uh, this is really a very serious decision because uh, if a patient decompensates in the CT scanner, it, it can be exceedingly difficult uh, to manage them. Okay, that does it for, our, uh, for part one of our trauma review. Let's finish off with our rapid-fire uh, questions. So, Patrick, uh, what are the two biggest categories of injury that may compromise the airway? Yeah, that would be facial or neck trauma uh, and uh, altered mental status secondary intoxication or TBI. Okay, uh, second question. Where should you insert a chest tube? In the fifth intercostal space uh, uh, in the mid or anterior axillary line. Okay. In patients who are requiring massive transfusion, what's the ratio that you should give with regard to blood products? Uh, it'd be one to one to one. Okay. In patients who are bleeding, uh, what are the six regions of the body that account for major blood loss? Yeah, uh, chest, abdomen, retroperitoneum, pelvis, thigh, and scalp. Okay. And in patients who are having a fast exam completed, what are the four windows that you're looking at to see? Yeah, we're looking, looking at the sub-xiphoid region, uh, the right flank, the left flank, and the suprapubic area. All right. So be sure to tune in next time for a collection of intense and realistic trauma cases to bring this all together. Until then, dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day.